millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As the Irish Refugee Council highlights the crisis in the state's protection system, we're joined in studio by Minister Roderick O'Gorman to discuss what's next for the Ukrainians seeking safety on our shores. We'll also debate the demand on our childcare services, plus the startling number of children experiencing homelessness in Ireland. And later, allegations of a cheating scandal in the world of Irish dancing, further delays to the Children's Hospital, and Twitter faces an Elon Musk takeover again. We discuss the stories you might have missed with our panel. You can join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Welcome to the studio, Rodrigo Gorman, Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth, Holly Carnes, TD for the Social Democrats, and Kevin Doyle, Group Head of News for the Irish Independent. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Uh, Minister, you're here because you've got a, a, a full plate, you've got a lot on, on going on in your department, and really just to touch on a big story that emerged this week, and that's around the refugees that we're taking in and the protection that we are offering them. Um, and the Refugee Council has said it's very concerned about the accommodation crisis that's facing people arriving here seeking protection. They've said in recent months they've seen a steady deterioration from direct provision to emergency accommodation to transit centres with people sleeping on floors and chairs, then to the use of tents and ultimately no accommodation at all in September. How do you respond to that? Look, I think the um, Irish Refugee Council have raised some, some very legitimate concerns and uh, they also recognise the dual crisis that uh, my department, indeed the country, is facing in terms of meeting the needs of tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing the war there. We're seeing the largest displacement of people uh, across Europe since the Second World War and also meeting the very significant needs of the increase in the number of people seeking international protection here in Ireland. And the combination of those two very substantial uh, increases in people needing uh, accommodation. Uh, this time last year, my department was supporting 8,000 people in accommodation. Now we're supporting about 54,000. Uh, so that very significant jump in, in a short period of time has uh, meant that we're relying heavily on private sector um, uh, accommodation, on hotels, hotels, on guest houses. And there have been times, and, and, and I absolutely accept this, there are times when the, the standard of accommodation isn't what we would like to offer. But yeah, when it comes to what we're offering... I'm just focusing in on what they're saying about no accommodation provided at all in September, talking about, you know, people sleeping on floors and chairs and tents. You know, is this appropriate? And is this a failure of our 
promised to deliver protection to people. There was a five-day period in September where we, where we ran out of accommodation for people seeking international protection. It's particularly difficult to secure accommodation for people seeking international protection, and that's put an, an, an extra constraint on my department's ability to deliver. But what we are seeking, what we are offering people is, is, is shelter and security. And what we've had, we to, be, and we've had to be very clear with now? people it's... coming from Ukraine yeah. in terms of that. It's, 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 it's not luxury. There is a wartime situation on in Ukraine and we're doing our best to offer them and offer people in the international protection. So just the, to that, clarify, that... people arriving now, say, because of this, what we've heard from the Refugee Council about no accommodation being available in September, what, what's on offer now? Well, right now, people arriving in Ireland are, are um, their, their applications either as a, as a displaced Ukrainian or as uh, an international protection applicant. Their applications are, are processed in City West, and following that, then they're assigned accommodation across the country. And as I say, the Where? majority of accommodation is provided through um, through 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 hotels, through mm. guest houses, through B and Bs. In terms of our response to Ukraine, we're looking at developing modular accommodation in places around the country. We're looking at uh, the the refurbishment of, 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 of former residential still, institutions. Still to be developed. Still, still, to, okay. still to be, but work is underway. But, but I, I don't, you know, I don't um, downplay the challenge that we're facing here in terms of those, those, those huge numbers. And that means that what we offer sometimes is not what we as a nation would like to be providing. Okay. Um, Holly, on this, uh, Minister Helen McEntee, um, you know, said at Dublin Airport on that day when many people were arriving in um, with nowhere to go, um, seeking protection in this country. She said there would be no upper limit, there would be no cap on the number of people we would take in and we would help. Do you think we sacrificed, you know, quality of protection um, over the quantity that we hoped we could help? I think that we should have done both and it might surprise you to hear that I, actually, I have a certain level of sympathy for the Minister Hannah's department because it's one department dealing with a crisis of unprecedented scale. At the end of last month, there was 55,000 Ukrainian refugees had arrived in the country. And then you got this on the shoulder of one minister, a few civil servants, one department that's already, you know, relatively overstretched. And from what I can see, they're completely overwhelmed. And I think that that's understandable. Um, what the Social Democrats have been calling for from the very beginning, and I think what we all really genuinely thought was going to happen was a whole of government approach, a coordinated approach um, to manage a crisis of this scale. Um, so at the beginning, there was talks of, you know, uh, incentivising holiday homeowners. There's about 62,000 holiday homes in the country. We haven't heard much about that since. The minister um, uh, brought up the modular homes. Mm. There was supposed to be 500 of them erected. That plan came out at the beginning of the summer. And now only 150, I think, have been approved, but it hasn't gone ahead. And that's only in three of the proposed five sites that were set to go ahead. And then in addition to that, there was the uh, proposal from the Housing Commission and some of the state's biggest builders and not-for-profit suggestion. And they're still waiting to like hear back. The government's still like considering this proposal that they would turn vacant and derelict properties into housing. And just, they're disappointed because the scale of this hasn't changed. And for example, in City West at the moment, there's um, 370 beds. 18 showers and 735 people there. And then all of these vacant properties, plans around modular homes that haven't been followed through yeah. with. There we were a lot of proposals, and I do remember that at the start. And, yeah. uh, uh, and to bring Kevin in on this, 
um, there was a sort of an all hands on deck kind of approach mm -hmm. and that we will help in whatever way we can. Small European country, but you know, we, we will do what we can here. But it does appear that there's a bit of a washing of hands um, from other government departments around this, that yeah. the minister's department is overburdened, well, according to the Refugee Council as well, overburdened with this task, and it's a big task. Is it politically that, say, the housing uh, minister is like, you know, I've got, another, I've got something else to deal with here and we don't want to sort of muddy the waters, we want to keep these separate? What, what's going on? I think there's a few things at play. One being, and in some ways what's happening now was, was utterly predictable if the war continued on. We all hoped it would be a, a very short war and that, that we wouldn't be looking at this situation. But the numbers that are here now were always predicted. They actually could have been higher by some of the early predictions. So we knew we were going to need this accommodation. So I think the problem largely, Claire, is that money can't solve it. So the government seem to have endless money at the moment for throwing at various problems, whether it's the energy crisis or the refugee crisis. But when it comes to housing, when it comes to services, um, they just cannot seem to break down the barriers to turn these things around quickly. And, you know, we see that in other areas, whether it's education. I mean, schools have done very well mm. to facilitate uh, Ukrainian students all across the country, which is a huge... It's not as simple as send the kids off to the school. It's, there's a lot of complexities within that. But now in September, you hear problems around buses. And in some instances, Ukrainian families are getting blamed for piling on the buses while local families that were living there for generations are missing out. And it does have a risk now that the longer the Ukrainian people need to stay here, and they, they do, let's be honest, you would rather be in Waterford or Kerry than Kharkiv, mm -hmm. um, the way things are at the moment. The services need to be there for them and the state, for whatever reason, just cannot seem to turn them around. Yeah, a, a, a lot of the criticism is about, has about being, while short term we're trying our very best, Minister, the medium to long term approach isn't really being looked at and that's coming home to bear now. Do you agree that your department is a little uh, burdened with this and that it is a great task that requires maybe greater all-round government support across many more departments? Well, in order to ensure that we had an all-of-government approach, we formed a Cabinet Committee that addresses this, led by the Taoiseach, involving all the relevant departments, and that sets the key policy uh, goals for government in terms of our response. And, you know, when, when Kevin spoke of, you know, all hands on deck, it is all hands on deck in terms of, of, of the response. We've, well, I think we've... that's what we were saying was that was the initial, that was the initial, well, that was the face of it, that it was all can, hands on deck. I, but I, is I can... it on deck, is it working out that way? I can tell you in, in terms of my department, it's all hand, hands on deck in terms of a, a, a daily response to the needs, uh, to the arrival of Ukrainians, to, to the arrival of people in, in international protection, to the sourcing of accommodation. Like we but have you, but, one but, in seven hotels being used now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, what about mm -hmm. the other to house but, 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 refugees? But, but, That's not, say, a sustainable mm -hmm. long-term solution, is it, Minister? But in terms of the, the, the central element here, I, I, I agree with Kevin in terms of the service-based response has been very strong across education, across uh, allowing Ukrainians access to the jobs market. But the key issue is accommodation, absolutely. And we know in terms of 
the existing housing crisis in our country, it is not easy to provide large amounts of accommodation in a short period of time. That's the situation in terms of the housing crisis. It's the situation in terms of the response to the, these needs. So that's why we have rolled out things like the pledge programme. We four and a half thousand Ukrainians accommodated and pledged. Uh, there are many days. more though, that, that, that pledges that were made that were not followed up on. Isn't this still the issue? They, they were followed up on, but, but for, for various reasons, they weren't deemed appropriate or indeed the people uh, withdrew from the pledges, recognising, and again, coming back to what both Holly and Kevin said, people initially thought this was going to be uh, support for refugees for a short period of time. But as they saw that this was a, 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 a much longer war, people very understandably with, with, withdrew from, from that particular so project. Not abs absolutely not. But, uh, not absolutely not. The pledge process is an extremely important element of our accommodation res response. More than 10% of the Ukrainians supported my department are through the pledged accommodation process. Would you acknowledge it's, it's a busy remit? Uh, the minister's trying his best to get to get through as much as he can on, on this one, Holly. Absolutely. Like I said, I acknowledge that the Department of Children, I think it is all hands on deck and you just said that, Minister, but it doesn't appear to be the case that there's all hands on deck in the other departments. And it's concerning because we can see how this is playing out. The Refugee Council coming out with the very clear, clear calls that I hope you'll listen to. But ultimately, it's a department that oversees children, equality, disability, integration and youth. And I think... That might sound to, to your viewers like, well, what are all of those things? But, for example, I sit on the, the committee for this department and we've been going through legislation around the Assisted Decision Made Capacity Act that you wouldn't even think of around disability. We've done several pieces of legislation on the mother and baby homes. This is a really overstretched department that's now taking on disability as well. And, like, even this week when we were in committee, it's not like we're addressing issues around the Refugee Council. You were in before the committee to give an explanation around the issue in relation to the Commission's report on mother and baby homes. And actually, as, as when the Minister is here, it's something that does need to be addressed because people need an explanation from you as to how you simultaneously are saying that the report needs an independent review and then you're also standing over the report and they're two contradictory positions that, you know, we spent all of Wednesday trying to get an explanation from you and an explanation now would be very welcome. But that's one example of how stretched mm. this department is and it's not all hands you, on deck. Do you want to respond department. to that, Minister? Well, look, we're bringing forward a range of um, responses to the Commission uh, on, uh, of uh, investigation into mother and baby homes. The question was, do you think there should be an independent with, review? With all due respect, Holly, and a key element of that was the delivery of information and tracing, which was available and, and two thousand people have sought their, their records through the information and tracing legislation we brought through on Monday. In terms of our response uh, to what happened last, last June in terms of the attendance of a, a member of the Commission before, uh, b b before a, a seminar in Oxford, I listened to what survivors said at the time there. I listened to their concerns about their voices not being reflected in terms of the Commission's report. And that's why we're bringing forward, as part of the Records and Memorial Centre, um, uh, a lived experience initiative whereby the words of survivors will form part of the historical record of what happened in these institutions. So you picked one of their concerns and decided to acknowledge it in you know, a museum or another building, but not in the records that are held in the department, you know, in the, in the, in the Oireachtas. You can't, and you're calling them words. These were testimonies. That demeans the entire process. And what people want to know is you said you were going to have an independent review. That was welcome. That was necessary because everybody knows the report was flawed. Now you've decided to get rid of that idea. But you I, can't use that as an I excuse. That's not a reason. I, I haven't, as you said, picked one element. I've responded That's to one a element. range 
of the issues that survivors have raised to me in my engagements with them over the last two years, provision of information and tracing legislation, mm. addressing okay. the situation the through to institutional burials, bringing forward redress, bringing forward redress legislation, uh, in, in, uh, going ahead with the, um, the records and memorial centre. Those are all key issues that survivors have brought to me since I came into this department and this government is acting on those issues. Right. Information and tracing. Contradictory position. Information you and tracing legislation. We're going to, we're going to move on on this one, but I do know... brought it through. We're going to move on on this one, and I do know that this establishment of an international expert group, I think, to, to, to look at um, the testimonies again was something that, that survivors will call for. That probably will go on and, and you will be, uh, as you say, addressing some of the issues that they have because there are a number of issues there. But look, we'll move on to um, childcare and I, what was announced in the budget and what you are promising um, in your remit as Minister is discounts coming for families in January and further reduction in fees possible in 2024. Can you also promise that with this discount will come crash places for people that somebody, say, with a baby now who in six months' time wants to ensure that they have a place for their child will actually have that minister because we know that if you reduce the costs, demand will also naturally increase for those places. Well, look, I'm seeking to deliver um, additional capacity for childcare, cheaper, uh, cheaper costs for parents, better pay for staff and sustainability for providers. And those are issues that I've worked on over the last two budgets. And that's why in this year's budget, we're getting an extra 346 million euro invested in one year, bringing us over 1 billion euro investment in childcare for the first time ever in the history of the state. And that is primarily designed at cutting costs for parents okay, from the 1st of January. But about that squeeze on places and the difficulty to get childcare Absolutely, at, yeah. at an and affordable rate in one of the key, uh, One of the key investments that I brought started last year and I've grown in this year's budget is core funding. And that's, that's uh, funding directly to providers that is allowing them pay their staff better but it is already delivering enhanced capacity. So we're seeing an 8% increase in the number of spaces in, in baby rooms for the under ones. We're seeing a 22% increase in capacity in toddler rooms for the, the, mm. the under threes. So we're already seeing increased capacity because of the measures I've introduced as minister. But there are other steps we need to take. I've met with city and county planners in terms of the existing planning regulations that link the building of new homes to the provision of childcare child centres. That's not being delivered everywhere. And we're going to work to make sure that that system actually delivers new childcare centres, particularly in areas where we're seeing the building of, of new homes. It's one, Kevin, clearly where the department will be judged. Um, made a big play, the government have, of, of childcare in this budget. Um, uh, it's interesting, though, isn't it, that, that polls and reaction to it have shown, well, with cost of living and everything else coming into play, maybe it's gone down a little bit in, in priorities or maybe because there was so much flag waving around it, um, it came as no big surprise to people. But how much will they be judged on their delivery of this? Because we're not doing well when it comes to international tables on, on how we provide it in this country. No, not at all. And for a very, very long time, there's a reason why we're so bad on that. And it goes back not just in the last few years, but well beyond that. But it's funny because childcare, Claire, and I think to answer your question about why it maybe doesn't feature so much when people are asked about opinion polls and the number one issue in opinion polls for people at the moment is cost of living. Well, childcare kind of sits in with that. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those mm -hmm. topics that if, and I can speak, say this from experience, if you if it doesn't affect you, 
you don't care. Let's be honest about it. You care more about your energy credits and your petrol and your diesel and whatever else. But the moment childcare affects you, you're obsessed with it. And people know how much it is and, and know your options are so limited. So I, I have a little one who's two and I was probably naive to it, but I remember when she was smaller, ringing all the local creches around me in North Dublin and being laughed at that I thought I could ring them and get her in in three months' time. It was like... And, and the point you know, you've raised there is a good one. Because the options are so limited, what a lot of people do is they end up looking for alternatives to creches mm. and also because they are more flexible for people. So I guess in, in overhauling uh, childcare, you also have to look at the non-creche sector here, don't you, Holly? Yeah. The early years, yeah, I think... and. It's those early years that are really at capacity. People can't get places. And I have a friend who did exactly the same thing, ringing um, for their child. And but even uh, the casual childcare or how people may pay, you know, a, a child minder or someone to come into their home. Are a key element of the, yeah. of, of the and, system. And, and, and whether, you know, all those discounts and all those supports will be offered to people who don't get fall into that, you know, crash space. Yeah, if they're not available, you have to look elsewhere. And I think, like, in fairness, the funding is welcome and it is, like, a big jump from where we were at and fair play to the department. I think that, that has to be acknowledged. But also, just the context is so important because we're coming from such a low bar here mm -hmm. that even if we, you know, it, it, the increase that we've had that is this huge, we're still, like, 50% less than the OECD average, for example. So we're at such a poor kind of level with childcare that Which we have... Is, you do have to start somewhere and I, I think and, and I, I recognise your acknowledgement that there has been a big jump this year, 346 million euro. Uh, but I think the point you made in terms of uh, looking at the wider sector and that's why I'm bringing forward, I've already brought forward a child minding action plan, recognising that there are alternative ways in which parents want to see their, their, their kids cared for. Child minders right now for the most part aren't regulated. So we're looking to create a bespoke system of regulation for them that they'll be encouraged to join, that they'll because feel attractive the, uh, yeah, to join. Yeah, because at the moment there's an awful lot of is, red tape is. around yeah, that, that yeah. it's very difficult so that's why for people to become registered child minders. We're designing something specifically for, okay. for child minders, but then the parents who use their services can use the NCS, the, the subsidy as well. I want to talk about the homeless figures, um, which have reached an unprecedented high, Minister, and there are now 3,200 homeless children in this country. When you hear that number, what do you think? Look, those figures are, are um, deeply upsetting um, and I recognise anything that I say today as, as Minister is going to be little comfort to any of those families who, who are homeless right now. But we also have to look at those measures that will in the short term impact on homelessness in terms of extending uh, the, the, the period for notice to quit, in terms of greater flexibility for local authorities to support HAP payments, but ultimately well, the, the, the way we address homelessness in this country is through building more housing. And that's why we four okay. and a half billion euro right. in the budget next year okay. for more social so, and affordable So homes. we've heard this from, from groups representing homeless people and advocating on their behalf as we face into a very tough winter. And they're saying, why isn't there a ban on evictions? We had it during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We saw the homeless numbers drop as a result. Mm -hmm. And is this winter not akin to a pandemic scenario here, we have people really to the pin of their collar who would find it desperately hard 
should a landlord choose to evict them? Well, m m I know that the, um, the Minister for Housing is engaging with the Attorney General in terms of the legal provisions around any, any, any potential restriction on evictions over this winter. Well, we winter. did it during the pandemic. Can mm -hmm. it be done again? Well, th that's, that's what we have to, to understand in terms of the Attorney General. The pandemic was one particular um, health emergency and we have to understand if something like that can be done again. Is it, and is it, it being explored then? But, but, but it, just, it, it has to be remembered that what the housing agency said yesterday in terms of these figures was one of the key issues that is driving driving the increase is the lack of availability of, 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 of HAP rental yeah, properties. I'm, just, I'm and thinking rental in the short-term minister and for people who are very worried... But that impact have, is a short-term impact. You know, 60 families, I think, in the month of August alone um, going uh, into homelessness and I think some 1,500 families um, in that situation and many more who aren't registered, who are sleeping on relatives' couches and, and, and really desperate scenarios, but they're not even in the system, Kevin on whether something like this um, with a crisis response is necessary this winter and whether it's something government are exploring. Well, you think back to when the idea of emergency hubs in hotels were introduced. Do you remember when they set up that there would be kind of hotel rooms, but families would also have access to play areas and, and mm -hmm. cooking facilities? And at the time, it was seen as like an outrageous scandal. And now they've just become so, so normal. It's part of the system now. It's, it's not an emergency measure. measure. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns anymore and so you can bring in a, a an eviction ban absolutely for for the winter but the numbers will still be back in february and march and april so it has to be something bigger than that i, I think the pla we're at we're gone past plaster stage because every time we put a plaster on it the bleed gets bigger and, and maybe that's the wrong language to use but the problem is getting worse every time so none of the plasters have worked and i don't know that any of us sitting here can give you the answer to this but it seems inexplicable that the figure for homelessness overall, kids and adults, has been around 10,000 now for four, five, six years. And that just seems inexplicable that we can't seem to get it even down to eight, seven, five thousand. Uh, Holly, on this, um, 
you know, pointing there to not a lot of government uh, progress at all in this area. Um, these aren't statistics. They're families, they're people. their children. Um, we don't know where they are, what sort of situations they're in tonight, but they're vulnerable. I think, like, just to hear that, oh, well, they're consulting the AG is just a sickening thing to hear because Fine Gael declared a housing emergency in 2014 and now we're going to consult the AG. There's been a 47% increase in child homelessness in the last year. And now we're going to consult the AG about potentially having a ban on evictions. There should be a rent freeze. There should be a ban on evictions. There was a, a briefing for the Cabinet Subcommittee on Housing recently that said we will not be meeting our housing targets this year. They're not even spending their full budget. They haven't built one social or affordable home. These are the kind of things, and like you say, they're actually, these are children. And children who are homeless are, we know all of the obvious things that go with it. But they're also more likely to be bullied, less likely to have friends, more likely to be hospitalised. There's all of these things. It's gone beyond the point of consulting the AG about a, an, a potential ban on evictions. I don't understand how that's the conversation we're having this evening when the housing disaster is at such an unprecedented scale. It's... Just, Minister, do you, uh, do, would you wish to respond to that um, just about the crisis we're facing and that short idea that short term, it's a sticking plaster? Well, I suppose in, in response to, to what Holly said, ultimately the, the government has to act legally as well and, 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 that, and, and that's, a, that's an issue. And, you know, Minister O'Brien has been clear they are engaging with the Attorney General in terms of the, 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 that, that short term response that Kevin said in terms of this winter. But ultimately, coming back to the core point, the way we will tackle and, and address and reduce those numbers of families in homelessness is by building more homes. That's why we have that very significant investment, capital investment, four and a half billion to deliver 12,000 social homes, five and a half thousand affordable homes next year. That is what is going to actually make a meaningful difference for homelessness in our country. Unfortunately, those targets are not going to be met. And that and is, there is another, and that is well, another, another day's work, another night's this, work, this and we will be, uh, There's another aspect. we'll be returning to that. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. Um, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Minister O'Gorman and to Holly Carnes. Kevin Doyle will be staying with me after the break. The world of Irish dancing is rocked by allegations of cheating and competition fixing. We discuss this and the other big stories of the week. So stay with us. Welcome back. Now it's time to hear our panel take on some of the big stories of the week. Kevin Doyle is still with me and we're also joined by Mairead Cleary, reporter for News Talk, and Sarah Carey, broadcaster and columnist. Um, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. Well, earlier today, Zara King of Virgin Media News spoke to Group Chief Executive of Airgrid, Mark Foley, as he warned of the potential for blackouts this coming winter. Here's what he had to say. When compared with last year, we have moderately more risk, and that's simply because we have less generation available this year than last year because some of the older plant is simply not available to us due to, to mechanical and other such problems. So going into this winter, there is clear risk. The risk is low. It will require a confluence of events for, uh, for example, an outage to happen. But it's a real threat, but it's also a very low probability. Uh, a real threat, but low probability, but all the same... Um, Sarah, guarantee, no guarantees there will be no blackouts this winter. It's certainly going to be a tight one. 
It is. And we've been here before. We were here last year, but obviously this year it is much tighter. I suppose the good news you can say is at least we know and people can prepare. And there are things that people can do for that. So a simple thing like having in uh, plenty of bottles of five litres of water in case your water uh, stops because there's no pump. Do you have torches ready? Stuff like that, just in case it happens. Obviously, we'd be hoping that if there are going to be blackouts, they'd be scheduled and people would get some warning and that they would be temporary. So I I know where I live um, in rural Mead. We mm. actually often have blackouts, sometimes oh, scheduled. No. You see, what you're talking about there now is yeah. homeowners preparing themselves. Yes. Now, what well, people will be shouting at the Are you saying they shouldn't? Why hasn't the government prepared for this? I'm resisting shouting at there you, Sarah. Is, there is... Um, the government has really messed up on our energy policy, I would say, mm. for about 30 years, going right back to the decision to deregulate in the first place. I actually believe that along with Cyprus and Malta, we should have resisted the EU directive to deregulate the energy market at all, simply because Ireland was too small to be suited to deregulation. And then when you pile on that, other policy decisions like splitting off Airgrid and the regulator who actually has responsibility for energy security, these are all very very poor policy yeah. decisions. And then when you add in, sorry, just one more thing, that people are always protesting against any infrastructure that has to go in to generate and distribute electricity in the country. So yes, there have been governmental errors along the way over policy. But the old bailout phrase, we are where we are. If there are going to be blackouts, yeah, you do have to prepare. What else are you going to yeah, do? Well, it's Not prepare? Yeah, well, we are where we are, but we are where we are. And we were there last year as well. There was talk of blackouts and brownouts and all sorts of things. We were trying to work out, you know, just how at risk we, we are. But it seems we are really in a vulnerable position when it comes to our energy security, Kevin. We are where we are, but where are we going? I think that's the, the question. I mean, Sarah's worthy public service announcement is very valid, but I think in the bigger scheme of things, when you listen to what Airgrid, Airgrid said today around the stark reality and the seriousness of this going forward, when you talk to people in politics, I don't think they're wildly worried that the lights are going to go out this winter. I don't think they actually believe it's going to happen on, on any large scale. Um, so I don't think that's a huge concern for them. But what they should be really concerned about is where we're going to be in 2025 and up to 2030. And the, what we want electricity for is changing all the times. Even take electric vehicles now take up 2% of our usage by 2030-ish, it's going yeah, to be over 10%. It's move away when we're going to more renewable yeah, or mean, more sustainable sources. We're moving away from fossil fuel burning in the home, say, but that means more... Uh, electrical demand as well, doesn't it? Does. it? And I mean, whether if or we not want the state have, is keeping pace with that. If we want to have one million electric vehicles by 2030, as the government target is, the fact of the matter is that either in terms of energy generation or mm. transmission, the system isn't there. And if on a single street in Dublin, everybody got an electric car and plugged it in to charge it, the system would actually go bang. But again, it does come back to people, and I won't apologise for this, that when infrastructure is being proposed, whether it's for renewable sources mm. or something like the liquid um, natural gas, port down um, in the southwest. Are people going to protest it or are they going to have to accept that infrastructure is necessary? Um, let's uh, talk about another big story that emerged today broken in, in the Irish Independent and that's about um, the Irish dancing allegations, Mairead. Uh, shocking to many, but as it's sort of emerging, um, it seems that it's, it's opening a can of worms and people are coming out and saying, look, we kind of knew about this or, or certainly I think there'd be more people coming forward to um, the newspaper and to other outlets saying 
we've more to tell. Absolutely. And like, that's the news that we've heard today. Um, and already, you know, we've spoken to people who are competitive Irish dancers or were uh, in previous years. And all of them said, I'm not that surprised. Now, that was only a small handful of people I directly know. Um, just even on the taxi ride over here, the taxi man told me about a gentleman he knows who wasn't in the least bit surprised by this story. Like, it has the same gravity, I would argue, as League of Ireland fixing. This is a big deal. Okay, it's a specific hobby, if you want to call it that, but it's an important part of our culture. And there's a lot of money it's involved. A lot of money. It's a global uh, community of dancers. And the Commission Lerinki Grelica is seen as the most prestigious body. And if they're going wrong, I mean, it's a really bad sign. This could open a can of worms, as you do say. Yeah, more of this likely tomorrow, do you think, Kevin? I mean, already tonight, I think uh, more revelations from a former Riverdance star saying what many others have said. Everyone in, in dancing knew that dodgy things were going on. To answer your question, yes, more of this tomorrow, Claire. There will be more revelations because, it, as Marie said, it has opened a can of worms. I. I spent in my role as head of news with the Indo, spent some of today going through some of those text messages that are mm. at the centre of this. And while definitely people involved in this, parents say they have suspicions, former dancers say kind of knew it was going on. When you actually see some of the communications that was taking, allegedly taking place between judges and dance teachers, you kind of just go, oh my God, it was so blatant. It wasn't even wink and nod type of stuff. Um, and it's very hard, and I found myself several times today resisting the urge to crack jokes about this because, you know, some, some of the stuff on social media about how the Irish dancing industry is reeling and it's all quite yeah, humorous. Allegations but... around sexual favours as well um, for winning competitions mm. and going yeah. up the grade or whatever. There's certainly whatever one instance there. of that that I'm aware of, yeah. Yeah, um, um, Sarah, on this, I suppose at the heart of it as well, it's really difficult for kids. It's a really competitive arena. There's an awful lot involved in terms of even you know, the outfits going to the various fashion and all the competition that's involved, all the pressure on children. And Those... then behind the scenes, these allegations that you were never going to win it anyway. And, and separately, Claire, I've was. always been bothered about that culture of those dresses costing thousands of euros, the wigs, the makeup, the fake tan. And a lot of it kind of looks like those odd beauty contests mm -hmm. they have for kids in America. And I'm wondering if this is an opportunity where if they're going to reform the system, could we ban all that stuff? Look how river dance went global with a completely different aesthetic. That's what brought Irish dancing into the mainstream. The black dresses, the ordinary hair, the plain look, and just do the dancing. Right. Okay, Is there might, any hope for that? might resolve all the other issues behind the scenes, um, certainly. But um, yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. Likely, More likely to come from that. Um, the Children's Hospital back in the headlines again, Mairead. The earliest potential opening date we're now hearing is the end of 2024. It was due to be open by now. It was actually due to open in August. Yes. But now we're hearing the end of 2024 mm -hmm. and the costs going up. We, we actually don't know what the final cost will be. Isn't that no, right? That's correct. And um, the National Pediatric Development Board, who managed the construction, they were in front of an Oireachtas Health Committee this week. Um, and they admitted that it will be a number of years before we know the true cost of this hospital. So right now they spent 1.1 billion euro of their 1.4 billion euro budget. And it's more than likely it's going to reach near that 2 billion mark, excuse me. Um, so one of the reasons why we won't know the end cost for a number of years is because of the claims. So there's been around over 900 claims um, are currently against that group who are managing the, um, the construction of the, of the hospital. 
um, and they amassed for 500 million euro the value of those claims. So obviously not all those are going to go through and payout won't happen for every single one of them, but they won't happen and they won't go through the courts for a number of years, so we won't know the end costs for a long, long time to come. Sarah, here we go again on these big capital projects. Um, We're just if, not good at delivering. Well, the bad news is, or maybe it's good news, is that it's not just we. This is called a mega project and it's something I work with in my day job. And there's an iron rule of mega projects um, declared by the leading world scholar in this, Ben Flubier, which is these projects always are guaranteed to go over budget over time and deliver fewer benefits. It goes across all kinds of industries from nuclear power stations to dams to software. It crosses public sector and private sector. Whenever you're heading up a project that's heading towards a billion or more, these kind of delays are just shockingly inevitable. Okay, so this is, this is meant to be, you're saying, and not really down to uh, government decision I'm saying, making or I'm the saying that it, it's unbelievably common in these massive projects that they run into these kind of problems. And I don't know how either governments or private sector are going to find a way to try and de-risk these so that people know the costs before they go in. It's a really, really tough issue. Um, yeah, it is. It's a big one, isn't it? Even on tendering for these projects, they're scared to put a figure out because mm. whoever's willing to take it on is going to go to that number and well beyond, we are finding out. Yeah, you've seen, you seen the trend, Claire, in everything we've talked tonight with the Minister and Holly earlier when we talked about the need for homes um, for both refugees and also for the homelessness. We've talked about the problems with our energy supply. Now we're talking about the Children's Hospital. And the state just cannot seem to get these big projects or done in a way that solves the problem. So there are children tonight still in Temple Street, crowded in, possibly in corridors and all the rest of it, in a hospital, well, there's a hospital that should have been opened. And Sarah's right, it was inevitable. Her analysis is actually spot on there because did any of us ever expect that it would open in August and on budget? It take COVID out of it? No, we didn't. Okay, um, and we'll have to see end of 2024. We'll see uh, where, where it actually goes to. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, my panel will stay with us because we'll have uh, lots more after the break. Sarah and Kevin are still with me as we continue to discuss the big stories of the week. Um, and Kevin, to come to you on a breaking story tonight and around a development around US drug laws, or at least a major pardon that President Biden has made, um, pardoning all people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law and saying his administration will now review all those laws, a big departure. It's a pretty huge statement, actually, from, from Biden, because he would be viewed as one of those in the Democrats who was very tough on drug use. So basically what he's announced is that, yeah, simple possession, you'll get a pardon for that, that he's basically saying that convictions have proven a barrier to people getting on in life in terms of employment, in terms of housing, in terms of education. And so he wants to wipe that out. And he's urging uh, federal state governors to do likewise. It's in, in the States at the moment, a bit like here, it's, it's a narco narcotic that is seen as having no medicinal use and a high likelihood of abuse. So it is a criminal offence uh, across the but board. But not everywhere, though, in, 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 in certain states. There are is, certain states. It, can... It's legal. So this sort of balances it up. Yeah, such. so certain. So, but, but Biden's message tonight seems very much to be 
let's try and, and draw a line under this now and, and everybody kind of take more leeway with it. And he's making the point, and it's, it's like a lot of things in America, it is going to become a bit of a, a racial debate as well. And this is only a few weeks out from midterm. So it's, it's this interesting timing for him, but he's making the point that proportionately, black and brown people versus white people use marijuana in the same way but black and brown people have an absolutely outrageously disproportionate amount of convictions for it mm. compared to white people. So it's a bit of a race issue within and that as well. So big statement from the Biden administration. Yeah, issue in the States. It is indeed. There will be more on that, no doubt, stateside in the coming days. Um, now to move a little closer to home. Liz Truss, a month in the job as British Prime Minister and to the chorus on move, of moving on up by M people, uh, she took to the stage for her speech at the Tory conference. Um, on this one, I don't know if we can see pictures of that. That classic from the 90s. Uh, what was funny about that one, Mairead, is that actually, uh, you know, M People's Mike Pickering said it was used as a soundtrack to lies and he never gave us permission for uh, his song to be used. It was also, of course, the day of the big U-turn on the higher tax rate yeah. that has got the UK in so much trouble. Talk about a bit of irony. Yeah, and people kicking up a fuss that their tune was used for Liz Truss. And actually the X Factor contestant, Ella Henderson performed as well. And she's gotten a lot of heat because she's performed at a good few Pride events. Um, and some of those events and the attendees, I suppose, have been tweeting her saying that, you know, it's, it's wrong to perform it at a Pride event one week and a Tory party party <laughs> another week yeah. um so it is interesting people don't want to align themselves with the tories in the uk it is so unpopular so unpopular in fact their decision that they've done that big u-turn um obviously they say that they've listened to the public and the question is you know why was the decision made in the first place yeah. and, they didn't even and it's an it. interesting one because i mean the point was made you know liz truss came in on the whole idea of trussonomics and now yeah. she has turned her back on that key policy decision um, that she announced, Sarah. So where does her future lie now? Well, it's a very dangerous time, not just for the UK, for everybody, because this kind of thing is contagious. And the intervention that the Bank of England made, you know, with the quantitative easing is temporary. Mm -hmm. And Larry Summers was saying today in the FT, well, what are they going to do in the two weeks for which they said they'd intervene is actually going to end. Um, Martin Wolf gave the most ominous uh, comments that um, I'd seen for the week. He said, the only sort of leader more dangerous than the rogue the UK used to have, Boris, is the zealot it has now. And the dominant characteristic of zealots is their conviction that reality must adapt to their desires rather than the other way around. If this attitude to life is adopted by an individual, it can do great damage to those close to them. Mm -hmm. In political leaders, the result may be a disaster for their country. And, you know, we're very, very close to that and we get impacted by this. And Summers were saying we could be entering a period of severe global instability. And he thinks people need to come together and lay out some kind of 15 year plan. Like this is, it's fun to kind of watch on one level, but it's real. But we are, yeah. we are close uh, to yeah. the danger and it is on a global scale, as you say. Um, let's stay with international stories now and um, the Iran protests that are going into their third week now of the death of Masa Amini after detention under so-called hijab laws in Iran. Um, we can take a look at Swedish MEP Abir Al-Salani who actually cut her hair uh, during an EU parliament speech in solidarity with Iranian women as she's doing what many are already doing in what's become a global protest. With the peoples and the citizens of the EU demand the unconditional 
and immediate stop of all the violence against the women and men in Iran. Until Iran is free, our fury will be bigger than the oppressors. Until the women of Iran are free, we are going to stand with you. Jian, Jian, Azadi, women, life, freedom. And she's making that statement that I think um, has been made. We have seen that in other forms of protest around the world. Indeed, Amnesty International have said at least 52 people have been killed since the start of those protests that show no sign of letting up um, there. Uh, I want to talk about, Kevin, Elon Musk and the Twitter deal. Uh, it appears that it was off and now it's on again. He originally walked out of this $44 billion, billion deal to acquire Twitter. What do you think his game is here? Well, he's fast becoming the second most unpredictable billionaire in America after Donald Trump, that's for sure. It's impossible to know what Elon Musk's game is because whatever game is playing, I think it's in his own head and we're all just, well, he doesn't know who we are, but we're all just, the rest of the world are just pawns in it. There obviously was huge litigation taking place in the background, which he once dropped uh, as part of this deal. So it's kind of, Fascinating to see, is he actually now buying it, not because he wants it anymore, but because it's easier than actually going through with all the lawsuits and the finances that'll eat up. Um, yeah. What he does with it when he gets it. Um, well, he says he wants to overhaul Twitter. He's obsessed with this free speech um, vision, but it is a pretty divisive platform right now, Mairead. Um, you know, where could he go with it? He says it's very left biased as well. Yeah. Um, it, it, his plan is obviously to maybe get the likes of Trump back on that platform again. Yeah, he has big plans. He is a big fan of free speech. That is his whole argument with Twitter. So yeah, we could see Donald Trump back. We could see Katie Hopkins back. People like that who are banned from the platform. Um, apparently, it's all part of his bigger plan to bring about um, the X app or App X, which is going to be your Apple Pay, your um, WhatsApp, your social media, all in one place. It's similar to what they have in China called WeChat. So he said that Twitter is kind of the first step in starting app x so um like what this could actually mean it could mean the edit button i suppose might be one feature that would be the first thing and maybe loosening the rules around abusive language Although that could speech. potentially have legal implications Absolutely. of course as well if you tweet something and then you can edit it uh, yes. and tweak it to according to to what suits at the time um sarah we can't go without mentioning loretta lynn um mm. grand dame of country who has died um uh, you know, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Were you a fan? Well, you know, she had an extraordinary life, married at 15, stayed in the marriage for 50 years, you know, despite reports, you know, that it was, you know, not exactly one of the best in the world, may have been, you know, some violence and that, six children. Um, and a, a feminist for the working class who criticised the C-suite feminists. Yeah. And uh, a huge star in the world of country. We'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Mairead, Sarah, Kevin, all of our guests tonight. Uh, for us, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.